Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hey, good morning, everybody. Thank you to this wonderful tandem. Appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Um, my name is Mike. Welcome to our community. We're delighted you're here, whether in person or online. Good morning. A couple... Wow. A couple of things, um, just to add on to some stuff that Blake was saying. We, in a couple of weekends, um, downtown Franklin celebrates a holiday called Juneteenth. And we are big fans of joining in that celebration. And for those of you that are new, this is uh, one of the things that, that attracted me to this community when I joined up a year and a half or so ago was the fact that, that we recognize that for Paul, read the book of Ephesians, for Paul, the overcoming of ethnic difference is one of the central outworkings of the gospel. It's not secondary. It's not political. It is the whole conversation about Jew and Gentile. Those are ethnic categories. And so we um, have worked and cultivated a partnership with um, an organization called The Public. And uh, The Public just provides safe space for people to begin conversations about this. Because if you're like me, you don't exactly know where to start. But Juneteenth is a celebration where, in downtown Franklin, we, we just celebrate and eat and um, play. And we need volunteers for all the things when I came um, last summer, um, this was the first thing I did with Journey, and it was great. I delivered cotton, free cotton candy. And um, if you're ever in the mood to just see people smile when they see you coming, which I don't get a lot, frankly, <laughs> handing out free cotton candy is the way to go. But if you're interested, we think it's super important, um, go to our website, JourneyTN, and then go to the events tab, and you can find out more and sign up there. Second thing I want to talk about before we dive in, um, do you guys need seats in the back? You're waiting on one more person? What's their name? <laughs> Michelle? Michelle? All right, all right, all right. Is she, is she close? That is most definitely, that's Edwin. Don't clap, don't clap for Edwin. Get out of the way, get out of the way. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. We were just talking about you. It's all right, we took what you confessed. <laughs> he walks out. All we did is we took what you confessed last week and read it, okay? That's all we did. It's not a big deal. No? Okay. I'm sorry, we're waiting for someone very specifically. All right, so I'm going to keep rolling, and then you just give me this, or else everybody that's coming in is going to be called that, so I just want to be, want to be careful. All right, so last week, whew, we, uh, we started talking about judgment, and if you were here, man, that prompted a bit of conversation. And every now and again, we get the, qu the question, hey, why do we do questions? Because it seems like it hijacks sort of the sermon. And, um, and so I just want to take a moment to explain why we do this and why we encourage it so much, all right? One of the biggest reasons is because our, our fundamental identity as is, is Christians is disciple. The word disciple means student. Is she here? Did I miss her? Oh, Michelle. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. We're so glad you're here. We want you fueled up. That's wonderful. And all the introverts said, I will never be late, ever. Don't marry an extrovert. That is so true. Somehow we get connected to each other, isn't it? It's awful. There's always the one person that's like, come on, let's go. And the other person that's like, no, just five more minutes. Um, but one of the things that we really uh, delight in is the fact that we embrace our posture as disciples, which means learners or students. And in the Jesus community, there are no experts. There are only people a little further down the way. 
And so um, one of the great joys of being a teaching pastor is I have been set apart by the community to prepare but I, I come not as some expert, but as a co-student. And so we embrace the co-studentness of the community when we allow the wall between the platform and the people to be broken down. So we're the Deadpool of, um, don't watch that if you haven't. I'm just saying, anyway, sorry, bad reference that will not make it to the 11. <laughs> The second reason we allow questions is we want to model the fact that church leadership should be questioned. We live in a culture where there is so much abuse and dysfunction, we, and, and many of us come from places where this has just been brutal, that we just want to model what it is to like be co-participants together, to not have people who are set over um, other people. We just don't think that's the New Testament model at all. We also think curiosity is one of the greatest spiritual disciplines that has ceased being practiced by the people of God because, oh yeah, I've heard about this before. No, we want to make the Bible weird. Jesus still disrupts us. He's a very disruptive presence. He doesn't just solidify what it is that we're always thinking. And so we just think it's important. I prepared sermons differently. I don't have like three points and a powerful conclusion. Um, Instead, I have material I want to get through, and very often you guys anticipate it, and we get through it, and it's like, okay, well, let's do communion, right? There's, it's just, it's reformatting the thing. So don't worry, we get through all the stuff. Often you guys anticipate it, which is why we were voted the most intelligent church in the Middle Tennessee. Um, that is absolutely true, and I cast the vote. So, um, so extroverts, raise your hand, shout out, introverts. Text line is for you. We love you. We do absolutely love you. Um, okay, so the third thing <laughs> is um, today we're going to tread in some really controversial water. And the goal is never for you to agree um, at face value with what's being shared up here. The goal is that we would, we think good teaching starts conversation, it doesn't finish it. And if you see how Jesus taught, that's exactly, we're still talking about what he was teaching 2,000 years later. That's how good his teaching was. And so uh, we're not afraid to wade into some controversy, and that's just fine. You don't have to agree. The goal is that you would leave here still talking about the things that we discussed and wrestling with them yourselves. All right, make sense? All right, giddy up. Matthew chapter 7, let's talk about judging. We were, really, we were really hoping for some place where we can judge, and guess what? There aren't many. Matthew chapter 7. No, I'm just playing. But not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or you will be judged. And we introduce the word. We introduce the word. Go back if you would, Nick. Sorry. We introduce the word krino, which is the word that we get the word judge from. Crino means to separate um, in, the, in the way that you separate laundry, in the way that we would separate good movies from bad movies. Um, and there are two kinds of crino in the New Testament and the Gospels. There's good crino, which we're going to call discernment, right? which is wisdom, which is the separating of things. Bad crino, which is uh, the judgment that leads to condemnation, is the separating of people. So the difference is, the separating of things is, hey, that is a healthy way of living. That is a way of living aligned with the kingdom or not. Separation of people is, that person is, boom, and we condemn them with the label, demonize them. They're, it's, they're the sheep and the goats, the righteous, the unrighteous, the saved, the unsaved, like that. Any judgment that puts ourselves above another is ruled out explicitly by Jesus of Nazareth. And, and we just kind of sat in that. <laughs> the only judgment we're allowed of others' worth is the fact that they were worth dying for. And they're of unsurpassable worth because they're made in the image of God. And before we rushed to, well, but what about? We just wanted to sit in the fact that, that because we are always eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are simply condemnation factories. This is just what we do. You see somebody's outside behavior and you render a verdict about what's happening inside or their worth or value. So kids are misbehaving, I render a verdict that that's a bad parent. Right? And we do this all the time. The question becomes, okay, well, 
okay, Jesus, thank you for that splash of very cold water to what we consider normal. But are there places where we exercise this good crino? And the answer is, of course, yes. But notice how narrowly this gets defined, all right? So, do not judge or you will be judged. For the same way that you judge others, you too will be judged. And with the measure you use to judge, it will be measured to you, which is horribly scary. And then he says this, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in yours? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to clearly see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Right? All right. Now, there are shockingly, shockingly, um, this teaching confronts sort of two idolatries that are opposite. There, there's one idolatry that is the idolatry of judgment, that the church isn't known for its love, it's not known for its grace, it is simply known for its judgment. And the church spends all of its time focused on the behavior of others, not itself. That is an idolatry that we spoke about last week, but there's also an idolatry that says, hey, we're never, ever, ever, because we're just a community of individuals, we're never, ever, ever supposed to say anything to anybody. Live and let live, we're all individuals, no one has the right to tell me what to do or how to live. And the, the conception of the church in the New Testament and here in Jesus is a, of a family of brothers and sisters, of siblings who belong to each other and who recognize the behavior of, um, it's, it, sin is never just an issue of me and God, it's always an issue of the community. And, that, so for, and I think that it's a generational difference. I think for some of us, we were raised just in the judgment mechanism and that's what the church did. And for others of us, that has been so squashed that the idea of actually talking to somebody about what it is that they're up to, it sounds absolutely horrifying and violating, correct? And so there's this middle ground where there are occasions when as siblings, we, um, we are to confront each other. And um, against the judgment, I want to judge everybody crowd, that is very rare. But against the, hey, everybody, let's live and let live crowd, there are times when that takes place, and it's super important for the health of the community that it does. All right? So, I want you to notice the way Jesus couches this statement about the log and the speck. The first thing he says, why do you look at the, spe the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Now, what does the word brother imply there? Related? That could be, but I think it's, I think it's a little broader than that. Relationship, yes, but there's a kind of relationship. In Matthew, whenever you see brother or sister, it's always talking about a feather. Fe feather. A fellow disciple is where I was going with that. Brother and sister always means a fellow disciple, right, in the book of Matthew. So if you see a speck of dust in your brother's eye, and brother and sister is implied here too, it's a neutral. The, the picture that we're given is that this kind of good discernment is only to take place within the community of disciples, right? And this is implied by Matthew 18. Go ahead and throw that up if you would, right? This very famous passage, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. What's the assumed context there? Yeah, it's within the community of disciples, within the church, or in 1 Corinthians, Paul, we read this last week, Paul just blatantly says it. He's dealing with like really egregious sin in the community. Go ahead, 1 Corinthians 5. And he is talking about sin that's in the community that, um, that not even pagans tolerate. And he says, what business is it of mine to judge those, what? Outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? Or, or in Peter, judgment begins with what? Do you remember? The household of God. I'll stop asking rhetorical questions and I'll just make the points, all right? <laughs> so we have whole cottage industries bearing the name Christian that sit in judgment of the world in direct violation to the example and explicit teaching of the New Testament that any discernment that needs to go on goes on in the community. The point of the New Testament isn't about how 
the church can transform the world. The point of the New Testament is about how the church can be transformed into the image of Jesus. We, and this is, this is so controversial, but I'm, I'm, I firmly believe that this is the teaching of the text, and read it yourself. That the goal of the church isn't to be the agent of transformation in the world. The goal of the church is to be the people who are being transformed. We're not sitting in judgment of the world. We are the focus of God's work. We are the community of people who've said yes to Jesus. And we, we, when we impose kingdom reality and kingdom commands and kingdom life on people who've not signed up for the kingdom and wonder why don't they receive this as loving? <laughs> right? Imagine, imagine Sharia law was implemented in the United States of America and you're a Christian. How's that feel? Right? We would, that does not feel loving. And so, one of, the, one of the reasons the American church is in the mess that it's in, and I am so guilty of this, is that I think the object of the commands of the New Testament are the people out there. The object of all of Christ's work, now he's working beyond, but the, the object of what the New Testament teaches are, is the, the focus is entirely and exclusively on the church being transformed, not seeking to transform everybody else. And if we actually believed that, well, that would reframe all sorts of other culture-warring sorts of things. So the assumption of the good kind of crino is that it's being done in the community of the church. Now, how big were the churches back then? What do you think? What's that? Not big, correct. They fit in houses. So... Big houses, yeah, sometimes. Thank you, Mr. Architect, but yeah. <laughs> there's some, you know, there's some issues with it being so flexible. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you just, that's Peter, he's awesome. He wore salmon pants at Easter, and we still remember it. Now, um... <laughs> No, if you meet him, he's just, he's hilarious. But anyway, all that is to say, moving on. Yes, 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 thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> the churches met in homes. Now, there was a case in the book of Acts when they were in Jerusalem, and they met in Solomon's court, which is a much bigger complex. But the unit of meeting throughout the empire was a meeting of, in homes, 15, 20 people. This would be a mega church in the first century. And so the atmosphere of like church discipline was such a different, different vibe. These were people meeting often every day. These were people on the inside of each other's lives. Far different from the meeting of a bunch of individual strangers who come together, sing songs, and listen to a teaching. So the assumption that, that Jesus makes and that Paul carries forward is that any discernment in the good kind of crino is being done in that small community. The second thing that Jesus points out here, which is this incredible metaphor about the log and the speck, right? So this is, this, this is in the context of sin. So if you notice a speck of sin in somebody else, deal with the two by four that exists in your own eye first. So how is it that we're to regard the sins of others? As bigger or smaller than ours? Yeah, smaller. So guess who, according to me, is the biggest sinner in this room? Me. I don't know any of your thoughts, motives, nothing. But I don't mind. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more that stuff gets shown for what it is. And so not only is the focus of God's work the church, not the world, the focus of God's work is me and not you. Now, there are still specks, right? Jesus doesn't deny that there are specks out there. Oh, that's the text line. That's the text line motion right there. Let me get through just a little bit more because we're going to make it worse. So, and I want you to read this. I want, just want you to read the New Testament and see what the focus of attention is. The focus of attention is the church, 
being transformed. And then when I sit in the church as a fellow sibling, the focus of God's work is on me. And if I were to see a speck in your eye, what would I first have to admit about myself? That I am a hypocrite. So there's no room for standing over anybody else ever. We're all invited guests to the table of Jesus. And Jesus gets to determine who's in and who's out. Not me. Oof. That, that's like first point. Then he says, take the speck out of your own eye. Oh my goodness. And then you could see clearly. And, and this is where, okay, so let's assume you are um, in a gathered community where you know each other well, you meet with each other regularly, you're like 10 to 20 people, and you see the speck in someone else's eye. Then can we judge? Well, what does Jesus say? Take the plank out of your own eye first. How do you do that, you think? Right, that's confessing that I'm either guilty of the same thing or I'm just simply somebody who sins a lot myself. Like, I'll get people that come up to me, not here, but other places, who'll say like, hey, when are we gonna preach against this sin over here? And the, the right answer is, okay, we'll preach about that sin as soon as we get done a, a, a preaching about your sin. So what's your sin? And let's talk about that one first. And then let's go to the sin of somebody else, right? That's how this works. That's why there's no, like, unerring expert up here. There's just a fellow struggler. Right? And so even in the community of the church, my job before I look at anybody else is just to admit and live in my own hypocrisy. And then, if there's still a conversation to be had, you have Paul saying things like this in Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, if we can do it. Brothers and sisters, if someone caught in a sin, you are, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person what? Man. But watch yourselves or you might be tempted. That's interesting. Or how about this? In Timothy, very not practiced. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, <laughs> but must be kind to who? Everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Oh, good Lord. Next. <laughs> Opponents must be what? Instructed. Exactly. Exactly. So what's the posture, even if we're discerning with each other? The posture is of gentleness and mutual reciprocity and blessing and humility, correct? John, hold on. It's going to get worse. All right? Now, Usually, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Usually, the, at least for me, internally I'm going, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. And the verse that I will appeal to against this set of verses is a verse in Ephesians that talks about speaking the truth in love. Have you ever heard that? Hey, how do we love people, but how at the same time do we hold on to biblical truth? As if, in the Bible, truth and love are things that are opposite to be held in tension. Have you ever heard this? Yes? Come on, my friends. I need more. We don't know what's rhetorical. Okay. Thank you for calling me out on my deviation between rhetorical and non. That was non-rhetorical. But the idea is simply this. There's this picture we've been told of truth on the one hand and love on the other. The question is, how do I hold on to biblical truth while loving people? They seem opposed to each other. And the verse that's often used is this verse in Ephesians. So let me get through this, then we'll hit John and, and texts, all right? So the verse is Ephesians 4, 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Now, have you guys heard this idea? Truth, love, and it's our job. And usually when we say speak the truth, that means speak the harsh reality to people. And love means not say anything. And just love them where they're at. 
So we hold these things in tension. Now, put that verse up if you would, speaking the truth in love. I had some Greek for you, but thankfully it did not all fit on the screen. I know, I know, I know, I know. But let me get a little Greeky, all right, just for a second. Oh, you want to? Okay, Nick, let's go. All right, that word, eletheon, all right, that first word is in the participle form, all right? Participles in Greek are the equivalent of adverbs in English. So you add ing. Paul invents a word that doesn't, tra- that doesn't translate speak the truth, that translates truthing. And it's truthing in love. So literally the translation is performing the truth in love, practicing the truth in love, witnessing to the truth in love. It's something you do. Now, that doesn't clarify exactly what this means. So go to Ephesians 4, 17. Paul clarifies what he means by truth. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So what's the issue here? How we believe or how we live? How we live. And then he goes on by showing, here's the futility of the thinking of the Gentiles. Then in 20 he says, That, however, is not the way of life you learned. So he's still talking about ways of living. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the what? That is in Jesus. So what's at issue here? The way you live. So instead of translating it, speaking the truth in love and thinking that these are opposites, Paul is inviting us to live according to the pattern of life we received in Jesus, and that is truthing in love. This has nothing to do. Now, there are other places where we're invited to speak, of course. But this has nothing to do with announcing harsh reality to people. What what Paul's saying here is the community of people bear the truth by being loving. And this is totally consistent with everything that Jesus says in the book of John. They will know you are my disciples by what? How you treat each other. Oof. All right. All right? Great. Let's close in prayer. We're good. Let's go to communion. What? John. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, yes. Right. Totally. Yeah, John's point is how easily abused, and we talked about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, right? How easily abused the phrase is, hey, God told me, God led me, to use to control somebody else. Right? No, God, I, I think God does speak. But the issue is whether or not you prefix whatever you're going to say with that. Absolutely. Especially if they're not on the inside of your life. Like, I get crenoed all the time. And so people will have all sorts of suggestions, and I pay no attention to them. None. Someone says God told them something, I say, well, he hasn't told me, so I don't pay attention. You can't frighten me with that. This isn't some chain letter that if I don't pass on, I'm going to like be burned in hell. In the early days, when your parents ran AOL, they would pass along these letters that said, unless you pass this letter along to 10 people, Jesus was going to hurt you or something. I mean, it was just awful. Yes. Do you think that the big C church, the big C church, yes, is, has issues with the difference between like judgment and balance? Like that's not yes, my life, right, but you do you. right. That's not good for my life. That can't be good for your life. Oh, so good. Yes. So often, what I, what I do is substitute my crino for God's crino, or I think my crino lines up with God's crino. So I may introduce a boundary that I think is healthy, but in actuality it's saying to somebody else, hey, I don't like this, so I don't think God does either. 
Yeah, this is where we have to, I mean, look at all the, look how those statements are loaded. And show me, show me in the teaching of the epistles where people are given permission to speak that way. Like even when it talks about prophecy, it says test everything, right? So, so this, this idea that somehow I'm the channel of God's voice to other people, my, the goal is that God would be speaking to me about me. And if that happens, there are times it spills over to other people. Great. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Okay, great question. All right, man. That's the question I was waiting for. Genius, genius. So the question is, okay, so, so there, is there ever appropriate time? Now, a, a, a pastor by the name of Scott McKnight, he's a pastor slash theologian, talks about how love, the word love, functions in the New Testament. We just have this generic big word love that just means affection or acceptance or tolerance or whatever. There are four aspects of biblical love that, that we base on how God loves us, all right? That's the model, that's the template. So the first thing, there are four sort of uh, participles to this. The first is that God is committed to us, right? He's committed to be with us, and he is committed to be for us, right? Two with and four. That's all what covenant language means. God is committed to us, he's committed to be with us, and God is committed to be for us. The last bit of love is that God is committed to loving us toward something, toward maturity, which is Christ-likeness, correct? So, and, and McKnight makes this point. The order of those is really important. When somebody is committed that you are, or, or convinced that you are committed to them, and you were committed for them and their best, and you were committed to be with them no matter what, then and only then can torting feel like love. But if you lead with torting without any of the other, it doesn't feel like love at all. None of us, none of us receive love that way. So yes, a great example of this is parenting. Right, you, you can raise great moralists as a parent. Hey, don't do that, don't do that, what are you thinking? And they just learn to pretend. You've done nothing to shape their hearts. They just have learned to be great hiders. And churches do this too. When you're a part of a community that, that feels like it's committed to you, and it's for your best, and it's with you no matter what you choose, then in family systems, torting is received as love. Now that doesn't mean it's, it's always easy, Right? It's not. But it's not, it's not experienced as control in the same way if you abstinented, abstinented, if you took away all of those, the relational context and just started with the torting. Yes, sir? Yeah. Yeah, I can't always control how well it's received, right? So for instance, let's say I find out someone close to me struggling with pornography, all right? That has been a struggle of mine throughout my years. So, and I see that they, that there are, there's fruit of that that's spinning out beyond just their own thing with Jesus. The way I might approach them, if I have relationship with them, is uh, to come up and say, listen, this has been a big struggle for me. This has been, this has been the, these are kind of the modes of life I've had to adopt to kind of war against this struggle. Like, I'm coming at them from somebody not who is seeing the speck with no recognition of the plank. I'm leading with my plank. And I'm doing that to say, listen, I want to invite you into the modes of life that I found that have been helpful in warring against that. Now, they may receive that as shame and condemnation. True. Absolutely, that any critique of them is automatically turned into shame. And that's part of the gently, right? That maybe we, we wait on our crinos until we build a non-shame-based relationship. Yes. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I have a, um, a do-over, but in terms of like 
Fantastic. We'd love it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Oh, man, thank you. What a, what a great perspective. So this young lady says she is in recovery. And there is, in recovery circles, there is this ruthless honesty and yet this grace. You're only there because you're all in recovery. And that combination is transformative. And, and she's just saying, I don't see that in the church very often. Correct, yeah. Because we think the object of God's commands are someone else, right? And we're not, and we're not just simply sitting. I mean, the, the closest thing I've ever come to like what maybe the, fir, the early church felt like was a, I did a six and a half day like therapeutic retreat with six other men, none of whom were Jesus followers. And the level of honesty was staggering, staggering. And then out of that, we started toarding ourselves, but not from a place of shame, but because we were all hungry for something new. Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you. Susie Lynn. Um, can, I, can I just add slash push back on something a little bit? First of all, are you or are you not the t- a teaching pastor here yes. at the church? <laughs> yes. So, so push back, push back. I liked what you said about the whole chain letter thing. This is not a chain letter. And all that you've been talking about has been in the context of relationship and humility, like your explanation of of how you would approach something with the plank in your own eye. So I do think that there are times where people have come to me and said, you know, I've, I've, I've been praying for you, and this is what I sense the Spirit saying. This is what I sense God saying. But because of the relationship that I'm in with them, and I know them, and I trust them, and they know that, and they also come at me with a humility that they could be wrong. Right. You know, God does speak to us. The Spirit speaks to us, I believe. And so... I believe it too. Yeah, totally. And, and so I would then take that into consideration. It's my job to receive that from someone who loves me, who I'm in relationship with, but it's my job to take that into my process of crino and discernment and prayerful consideration and, you know, determine how I'm going to follow Jesus in obedience. So Perfect. I just wanted to add that. Um, there are a couple of questions about... Yeah, let's do a couple. Well, they're kind of all in the same vain. Yeah. Um, but it's, what about our call to seek out the lost? This question comes from a point you made oh, earlier so about God focusing on the church and transforming us versus unbelievers, those not in the church or a part of the kingdom or who signed up for the kingdom of God. And then another person said that um, how, in the same light, how does Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to 20, which is known as the Great Commission to yeah. go and make disciples of all nations, um, how does Matthew 28 and evangelism fit into this community mindset that we are the focus? And then another person uh, said, uh, basically, like, I'm not understanding the point that God doesn't want to transform the world, but wants to transform the church, because I feel like that sets, us, sets up an us versus them situation. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Those are phenomenal. <sighs> All right, um, thoughts. Uh, first of all, boy, the evangelism thing, I'm going to get in the hot water. I am not speaking at all for Journey Church. But when I read the New Testament, I'm not. We don't have an official position on this. Well, I mean, it, means, it means I'm Mike. I'm not, I'm not like, there's no official because some of you are just going to horribly disagree with me here, and that's so great. But just read the New Testament and tell me. Show me where the mandate is for individuals to go out and have awkward conversations leading people to Jesus. I think evangelism in the New Testament is corporate. Because Paul says, the only place Paul says we proclaim the gospel is when the community eats from the table. 
that we are to foster ways of living and ways of being community that are attractive to people who notice. So I, I'm just off the train of, um, uh, of, of, of trying to conjure up God talk all the time. The minute I sense that somebody has an agenda for me, I stop listening. So my belief is that if we love and serve and are committed to people in the world, that these, these sorts of opportunities will happen naturally. Uh, and I've seen that happen. I was a chaplain for a police department. I never opened my mouth about Jesus talk. But one day, a buddy of mine, or one of the guys I was with was like, hey, so um, I have this question about whether or not I should go to a strip club as a married man. And so we spent three hours talking about that. And out of that grew a Bible study of guys who'd never opened a Bible. And our literally first, our first Bible study was the table of contents. Because these guys knew nothing. But it taught me something. Being real, showing up, being normal, being for them, no matter what. See, if they sense that agenda, I think we're in trouble. So my, my and, and not everyone agrees, obviously, uh, and there are, some, there are some early church theologians that say that, that the church believed the Great Commission was fulfilled by the apostles, that the gospel was preached to the ends of the earth, and that our job now is to witness to that preaching. I'm not sure I'm all the way there yet, but I do not feel this responsibility I felt when I was a kid, and I don't see it in the New Testament, that I am simply someone who's going around conjuring up Jesus conversations because I have a agenda with people. The counter to that is, yeah, but isn't the most loving thing to speak the truth. And then I go back to Ephesians 4, right? The most loving thing for me is to be in a community that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes and to invite people constantly to be a part of that. Yep, in trouble. Okay. Kevin at Journey Church. <clears throat> oh yeah, we do have our, we have our class. Yeah, go talk to Kevin. Yes. Okay, well then... Here's another question in light of that. Oh, Can we goodness. truly truth and love outside of the closer community context? Say that again, I'm sorry? Can we truly truth and love outside of the closer community context? Ah! Is that the true direction the culturally American church should lead is to small household churches, or is there a biblical benefit to larger meetings? Oh, well, there, yeah, there's a benefit. I mean, here we are, right? But there's also, you can't do all the one another's in this group, right? I mean, the whole, the whole Paul's vision for the community is a bunch of one anotherings. Carry one another's burdens and forgive and I mean, so on, so on. You can't do that here. So that's why we do the table. And that's why we make it explicitly not religious. Because we are first and foremost a community. My, my point is simply this. We read the Bible as a bunch of individuals thinking about individuals. The Bible is written to communities thinking about communities. And so what we've done is we turn evangelism into something I do to other individuals. And I'm just simply saying, no, I think the goal of the church is to create a, an, a, an alternative polis, an alternative expression of witnesses to the reality of Jesus and live in such a way that people not just receive our judgments, but they actually can imagine a different alternative. So when the church is just divided, so like gun violence, I mean, here we had a shooting last night in Philadelphia. We had one in Iowa at a church. We had one in Tulsa at a hospital. That was also just since last week. What we do in the communities, we just split along political lines. And that is the most tragic thing the church can do because the church is the place where we cultivate an alternative imagination to both lines of political thinking. Because we have... Our truthing and love means we're embodying corporately the witness of Jesus. And so the invitation, I think, isn't just for me to take my place in my spiritual gift. The invitation for me is to become part of a flourishing community that begins to put on display what happens when you put faith and trust in the resurrected Jesus. Now, are there times we say something? Absolutely. I, I share my faith all the time. I really do. I absolutely love it. Love it, but I've just given up trying to manufacture opportunities. I want to be joyful on airplanes because everyone hates it. <laughs> Seriously, I want to be a big tipper and ask questions about the service, or the server, not the service. We can ask questions about this, right? Those, for me, are all sorts of natural ways of just being an agent of blessing in the world, and I found that that stirs up so much. So, 
Then what was Peter doing at Pentecost? Oh, 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 Peter was preaching to Jews, right? Did Peter consider that evangelism? I would argue no. He was preaching to Jews who'd been waiting for the Messiah. And there, of course, there are examples of, of evangelists who go out and proclaim the gospel. Absolutely. But notice Paul's sensitivity is when he does it. When he's standing before a Greek audience, he quotes Greek poets and prophets. Who, and he quotes lines who, that were used in the worship of Zeus, and he quotes them in his proclamation. But when he's preaching to Jews, he's quoting the Old Testament left and right. And so I was taught a method of evangelism that just said, here is the thing, and run everyone through this thing, and find any excuse to go through that, because the stakes are so high, they're going to be burning in hell unless you do. I do not see that posture in the New Testament. This is Mike talking. Boy, I, I don't know how to feel about you right now, because you're looking at me crinoing. You're crinoing me. <laughs> I'm getting crinoed left and right right now. Is one last? Sure. Oh. There's a few, but we, if, if we don't get to the question, there's always Kevin's class at 11 is a great avenue for that, and we'll try to respond to him as well. And we might podcast. Okay. Um, I've heard it said when it comes to judging that Jesus did it as well when he called out the Pharisees and called them vipers. I always thought that Jesus, being who he is, knew the heart, knew their intent. That's why he could. Thoughts on Jesus doing this action? People oh. using his action to judge as well. Oh, yes. You know what I mean. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Again, I'm just some schmo. Take this for what it's worth. Okay, it's fascinating. How did Jesus judge and who did Jesus judge? And what was the result of his judgment? So Jesus exercised crino. He invites us to exercise crino. Yes. I'm not, please don't hear me saying we're not supposed to do that. We are. It's blatantly taught here. All right? Who did Jesus use crino towards? Who was it? The Pharisees. The religious elite. Who? were masters of the judgment calculus that Jesus himself outlaws. Now, Dallas Willard has a great line where he says, I can trust Jesus to be angry. I have a much harder time trusting myself. Well, that's how I assume with judgment. I think God is way more invested in this world and the lives of people than we could possibly ever realize. And so I posture myself towards everybody else as the biggest sinner in the room. When God's talking, I assume that he's talking to me about, not in some narcissistic way, but about growing and being transformed into his image. I'm not sitting there thinking, hey, so-and-so needs to hear this. And so I, my posture, and then when I'm with you, my posture is one of learner, a co-student. You guys teach me that leaven always changes because of the stuff that you say in this service. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Last, last one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's so good. We're all just over here shaking our heads, like, what a way to end. Yes, because if you want to know who I judge, I judge the judgers. And in so doing, I become one of them, right? And how do we combat that? How do we get them on our side? No, 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 getting them, no. See, that's so great. All right, first of all, you are brilliant, and what a great way to end. The posture I have towards Jesus isn't trying to get anyone on my side. The posture I have towards Jesus is that I might be transformed more into Jesus. And that means looking like someone on a cross, Humility, vulnerability, honesty, blessing, generosity, mutual friendship, reciprocity, those are the postures I'm continually taking. So when I see the judgers, and I myself always tempted to judge, the invitation to me is to embody the alternative. Right? Because if I get focused, and this is where I so restrict social media, 
Because all we're doing on social media is just judging. It's just how can you not do the bad crino when that's what it's filled with? So I guard social media. I try not to sit in, in labels. And I walk around as the biggest sinner in the room. You know? And I really do that. What a great way to end. All right, yep, better get up, drummer boy. Let's go. It's time. Yep, guitar hero, let's go. Anyone else? That's the sure sign they're playing me off the stage, right? It's like the Oscars when the band starts showing up. Now, hey, look at me, if you would, for a second. I love being a part of a community that does this. And I realize it's unconventional, and I realize at times it's uncomfortable. You don't have to buy it. You just don't. The goal is that you would come away and go, ooh, I want to read Ephesians, or ooh, I'd love to read the rest of Matthew, or ooh, I'd love to talk about this at my table. Because there are so many implications, and I'm not right on all of it. I just don't know what parts are wrong. I estimate at least 35% of what I just said is incorrect, but I have no idea which parts. So we're sifting and sorting, right, in the best way. So today, as always, we're going to engage in the Lord's table. And we engage in the Lord's table as people who come totally leveled. None of us is deserving to come to this thing. None of us is worthy to come to this thing. None of us, our righteous deeds are just like filthy rags, according to the prophets. We just come as gift recipients. And as gift recipients, who are we to determine who else gets the gift? That's all. And we want to put aside the tendency, at least that I have, to condemn everybody. And I want to place myself in front of God as part of a community saying, God, I want to be transformed. I want to be the kind of person that simply radiates Jesus. So that people are aware that there's just something that's, I don't know, uncommon. There are times, absolutely, we speak, just like we do in healthy families. We are a community of truth. We're not into pretending. It's just much, a much more rigorous process than just flippantly sort of crinoing each other all the time. So let's pray, and then um, we'll go ahead and open up the Lord's table. You can journal, write. Um, there are giving boxes around the room and so on. So let's pray. Father, we are, I am, man, so grateful to be uh, a part of this crew. And Father, we just want to receive, we want to receive your word. We don't need more human opinions. We just need a, a, a fresh word from you, Lord Jesus. So help us to take your word seriously here. Father, we bless you. We invite you to come. We invite you to show us how much we are beloved and how much we've been shown grace, and how much mercy it is that we've received, that we might become people who easily and naturally dispense that grace and mercy to other people. So to that end, Jesus, we ask your blessing. Amen.